Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Tarek Siri interviews Brian Higgins. Tarek is a senior director at TransCanada Capital, a $23 billion investment management firm that oversees the pension assets of Air Canada and outside organizations. Brian is co-founder and co-portfolio manager of King Street Capital, a 25-year-old credit-focused hedge fund that manages $20 billion in assets. Before they get going, Tarek and I discuss King Street's distinctive features, TCC's ongoing due diligence, and the fit of King Street in TCC's portfolio. Derek, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. It's good to be here, Ted. So King Street's an interesting one. Big firm, been around for a long time. Curious in your thinking of investing, what do you see as distinctive about King Street? It's one of the longstanding debt shops. And in our opinion, it's one of the best in class out there. They do a combination of both bottom-up and top-down approach where you have a team of researchers doing all the fundamental work and feeding the team that looks at the macro. And it's really 
marrying both approaches, which I think is very different. And also, they're not really driven by the cycles. A lot of these distress managers are tied to these cycles. They're more agnostic in terms of that. Another layer that we like is the trading aspect of it. They are more of traders as well. They're not just buy and hold. So a combination of all the above really attracted us to King Street. How have you gone about conducting your due diligence with a big established shop like that? It was a lot of work just to get to know them. And we really relate that the more information you give us, the better we can get to know you. And the more the capital is going to be more loyal to and sticky in good times and more importantly, in bad times. And we love the team and we actually like their other investments and brainstorming with them. How can we work together and create a strategic partnership? They are experts in liquid, long, short debt, distress, event-driven, but they also experts in other fields as worth on the private debt side. So we discovered that with them and we really partner with them on selective opportunities there, both from the uh, commingled side and the co-investment side. In organizations like this, inevitably people retire, they leave, they come. And the big one with King Street over the last bunch of years was Fran Biondi, Brian's partner, retiring. Curious how you thought about the organization when one of the founders has moved on. No, absolutely. That's a really good point you raised. We had to re-underwrite. And what gives us comfort is we just didn't know the two co-founders. We actually knew the second tier and third tier of people, they have a very deep bench of experts in there. And we're very confident with them since we had relationships before, we had discussions with them. So we were very confident that it was no red flag for us when Fran left the organization. How does King Street fit into your portfolio? So King Street is one of our credit distressed uh, hedge fund managers that's in the hedge fund portfolio that we have. So we have a multi-manager portfolio that includes fund investments and co-investments. And then we have King Street in our private market portfolio. So we have them there with an overflow fund allocation. So we use them for co-investments as well. So we use them in the hedge fund more for alpha generation, diversification. And on the private debt, it's really about extracting returns. Well, Tarek, thanks for doing this with Brian and bringing it in. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. A pleasure. Hey, Brian. Thank you for joining us today. You have been running one of the longest standing and largest debt shops. So let's get to know you beyond the bio. Let's talk about your background. Where did you grow up, your prior experience and education, and why the interest in finance? Thanks, Tarek. And great to see you as always. So I grew up in New Jersey. My dad worked at Johnson Johnson after the Navy, and uh, he was in New Brunswick, and we lived in a town called East Brunswick, so a nice suburban place, and I loved to play uh, sports as a kid, and so baseball, basketball, you name it, I loved to play it, and so as part of that, I loved to keep statistics and read the sports pages, and I was always looking at all those things. And one of the things that really came upon was baseball cards because memorize all the statistics for my favorite players. But what happened when you're a kid was you, you used to trade baseball cards. So it's early training for the work that I do today, which is baseball cards, you call them keepsies. And that's sort of like you went back and forth. And so your hard-earned baseball cards that you bought, you could lose if you weren't good at trading. So you can say that trading baseball cards is your first expertise in that. It was fun and really something I loved. And certainly uh, as I've applied the passion to analyzing companies today, it really uh, blends the same thing. I've been doing it my whole life. So that's quite fun and love to do a lot of odd jobs and work. And that's sort of interesting about businesses as I had shoveling driveways and snow. And I guess when we had a lot of snow back then and cutting lawns in the neighborhood and I developed a business. I said, all right, well, I'm going to do this. But I'm pretty good at this. And so I, I went around the neighborhood and got a bunch of clients. And uh, at one point I had some 60 customers and uh, there was this development with all these townhomes. I get eight bucks per townhome and I figured out I could mow across the row of them and get a bunch of them at once. Corner lots, I charged 12 bucks. And it was sort of a number that was pain point where they were like, okay, well, I'm not going to buy my own lawnmower, but I'll pay this kid eight bucks. And so I had a bunch of friends in high school and we had this nice little business. So I guess that's always wanted to have my own thing and like a little bit extra money in my pocket. So uh, combine the two, it was quite fun. And I grew up in the seventies and there was lots of inflation. People talk about inflation today. Well, back then we're talking 
geez, it was double-digit inflation. And I had all this hard-earned money that I made shoveling driveways or babysitting or mowing lawns. And I said, well, I, I don't want to lose it. And so gas lines, it was kind of scary back then. And so I see these advertisements for gold and silver. And that's sort of the boom bust. Back then, you had gold multiplying. And and one time I was like 11, 12 years old, and I fil- saw this ad and I filled it out and sent it in, put my dad's work number down. And so then some broker called up my dad and said, oh, you know, you're interested in gold. And he said, I think that's my son. Uh, and I was trying to buy some Krugerrand coins. But ended up not having enough for the minimum. So uh, he got a kick out of that. And then the silver market, if you remember back the hunts trying to quarter the market and saw that thing go up and down 80%. So, so a bit of boom and bust and sort of the impact of inflation and market movements. And you know, I was always intrigued by that and analyzing statistics. And so when I went to college, it was like, okay, you know, I'm good at math and science. Why don't I do uh, engineering? And so I went to Villanova University, which is Philadelphia, and, and studying electrical engineering. I was probably the only uh, engineering student that had a subscription to the Wall Street Journal because <laughs> I was always fascinated with markets and movement of prices. And so that was interesting. And I guess after two years of electrical circuits and systems and some pretty dry stuff, I said, wow, this, this merger stuff is pretty cool. And I switched over to finance. Was it hard for you to switch to finance in terms of finding a job, given your background in engineering, especially going into Wall Street? Maybe you can tell us more about that. Yeah, no, it's certainly Villanova, a great school. At the time, it really had zero notice from Wall Street because they went to the Ivies. They weren't recruiting on campus. And so given I lived in New Jersey, and it was sort of a short bus ride. I decided I wanted to be in this analyst training program. And that was sort of the thing I always wanted to be in. It would be the best thing, working all these hours. That was exciting because I love to work. And this would be a really cool way to work on these big mergers. That was the year 87 when I was graduating with the movie Wall Street came out. And so it was the height of euphoria. People come out of jobs. Today, they're going Silicon Valley and, and the like. But back then, Wall Street was one of the areas of focus. It was difficult coming there. It was very competitive. But I put on my little suit and printed out a bunch of resumes. And literally, I got in the bus and I spent my spring break senior year going door to door to different firms and dropping off resumes for anyone I knew, a guy I used to cut his lawn. Hey, you know, you're on Wall Street. Well, you know, where do you work? So it was interesting. And I ended up lucky enough to get a job at, at First Boston in their analyst training program, which is now called uh, Credit Suisse. And was that, Brian, like in 87, like during the crash, you got your first job? July 6th, 1987, we started analyst training program. And actually, my co-founder, Fran Biani, and I were in the same program together. And so about probably two blocks away from here, we started. I could look out my window and see the building we started in. So it was pretty cool from 34 years ago. Maybe you can tell us about King Street. I think maybe you can talk about meeting Francis, your partner. How did you guys come up with this idea back then? It was very competitive. It still is. And the vision of King Street, where it is today, did you ever imagine you would be sitting on a successful platform? Yeah, so at First Boston, you know, I went down after my two years in 89 to trade distress proprietarily. And so wanted to get that markets experience. And Fran went off to business school. And then I get down there a few months later, Drexel Burnham, they're issuing CP one day, 90% market share in the high yield market, and boom, they go bankrupt the next day. So again, boom bust. And see that Fran, after a couple of years of business school, rejoined us at this internal hedge fund that we formed a couple of years later in 91. So he and I have known each other since the beginning and worked together really since 91 and had this internal hedge fund. And so setting up a hedge fund internally at a big bank, as anyone who works at a big bank can attest, it's set up any business is difficult, but inside a bank is extra layers of complexity. So it sort of give us this confidence, if you will, about that ability to do it. Plus I'd had the banking and the cap markets experience, understand trading, sourcing. Fran had this deep analytical framework. And then so we worked together at First Boston. And then a couple of years later, we had the debt crisis, Greenspan, Jack rates, 75 basis points in 94 and the bomb massacre, trillion dollars of lost value. And so we said, hey, we can do this. And in 94, we left and so started up in 1995. And given that complementary skill set we had, deep trust between the two of us and really were excited. We thought, oh, we're going to start with 50 million bucks. It's going to be great. And, and people laugh even if you start with that little today. We ended up starting trading in April of 1995 with uh, $4 million under management. 
So a princely sum, if you will, but we got a million dollars from uh, Jimmy Kane, who was the CEO of, of Bear Stearns, a friend and mentor, and was amazing because he gave us the first million. He acted as a reference for us. So he was sort of our first marketing department where you'd have a reference and top of the list would be Jimmy Kane, chairman, CEO of Bear Stearns. And they'd say, well, we could really call Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, call him. So we would get these phone calls from allocators and they say, yeah, they're great. They're great. Give them money. Yeah. What do you, you know, and he called me right afterwards. He said, how did I do? How did I do? Did I give you money? And he would get like upset if I, if they didn't give us money, never asked for a thing in return, just was so happy for us and proud and just really an amazing mentor and individual and great friend. And then, you know, another fellow, uh, Vince TC, who was on the board of Bear Stern at the time and also a, who's banking commissioner state of New York and had a very entrepreneurial career himself, tax lawyer and commodities trader, all these different things. And so the two of them act as our unofficial advisory board, if you will. And really without the two of those two individuals, Fran and I wouldn't have been able to start. And certainly at $4 million, it was, again, not what we thought we'd start with, a little windowless office, the two of us. And my brother used to call us two guys capital, which <laughs> anyone who grew up in that era can remember two guys retail that went bankrupt. So I said, it's not very funny. I know we trade in bankruptcy, but calling our business after a bankrupt retailer is not very nice. But, uh, you know, it was fun. We were very entrepreneurial and believed in ourselves. And, and the markets, thankfully, after 94, it was a tailwind. There was a lot of interesting things to do. So we were fortunate in that regard as well. Let's talk about King Street's investment philosophy. Tell us about the engine, how it works, being a value investor, the marriage between the fundamental view and trading. We'd love to hear more in detail about how you thought about it and your thoughts there. That, in essence, right? It's that deep understanding. And, and that's why we're so fond of our partnership, really. It's true partnership is, is having a strategy that can be clearly articulated such that your partners, your clients can recite it back to you. And that's that deep understanding that's so important and has to be an edge that defined. And so you got to go to your investment committee, you got to explain. So you know, I think it goes back to a number of things, seeing the many booms and busts in my personal and professional life, thankfully not being a part of any of the busts, but really being on the right side of these things. And over time, learning to position it appropriately, that downside protection, that fundamental analysis is so key, but as you noted, and you know, being a, a trader, when you see markets free fall, as I witnessed with Trexel going to business and markets trading bomb points, 20, 30 points wide, flat versus width in terms of accrual of interest. And so it was an incredibly volatile time, but it's informative and in understanding the importance of incremental return and dampening volatility that can be achieved through the marriage of the technicals and fundamentals. And so also the positioning, we traffic in companies that are secularly or cyclically challenged. And so it's important that we understand that we're an industry that needs to constantly evolve and, and reinvent oneself. So our strategy, which was at first Boston and on the distressed prop desk and then internally the hedge fund we had there was we always did the shorting because being part of the trading desk, you know, had that. So I think that was a key differentiator. But also as we went out broader corporate credit and we just looked at things and said, you know what, we want to go into areas where there's a excess or a deficit of capital. And there's an inevitable dislocation that occurs as the pain point gets too great. And the ensuing volatility we're able to trade and with the vol valuation work we do, we're generally on the right side of it. So Fran was Morgan Stanley Real Estate Fund out of business school for a bit. So we had this real estate background as well. So then that goes into structured credit. And we were one of the first people to go into credit default swaps when they first came out. But really it was as we look at our strategy, which was people say, oh, distress, it's so very narrow. But it really isn't because it broadens over time. It's how do you apply that? Are you saying just corporate stress? Or are you saying, well, distress can be an ABS, it can be an A structure credit, it can be in hard assets. Or one of the things that we're doing a bunch of the last couple of years has been in growth lending. And you look at the technology market today in the VC market, I mean, there's 2.7 trillion of unicorns out there. Now you look at allocations for companies, allocators, I mean, pensions, foundations have pretty full allocations. So where's that next wave of funding going to come from? 
many companies are staying private longer, so valuations are greater. And so it requires bigger checks. And also, why keep diluting yourself? From our perspective, we find it hard to find managers who are very opportunistic, who are flexible enough to move around, right? And just capture opportunities and being very responsive, especially with the large asset base of King Street. Some investors would argue, how can King Street do it? How can they actually provide that? An example would hit this on the nail, and I have a good one since we've partnered with you guys on this. We can use the last 18 months, for example, where King Street was able to really pivot and take advantage of the opportunities post-March of 2020 last year. So we'd love to hear more about that and how you guys were disciplined and going against the, the curve there. So very difficult time, as we know, and, and obviously some unfortunate things in terms of health-wise for people. And, and so that's a sad time. And I think the government stepped in and the Fed and the ECB and ring-fenced a lot of these businesses. And the market, really, we first order business was to take down some of our positions that we had the liquidity to do so. And that's, again, making sure that we have liquidity as always in our existing positions. And that's having that marriage between trading and, and research and make sure there's always a price. And you want to be a price maker, not a price taker. And at that point in time, it was challenging, but we were able to take down some of our existing positions, de-risking, and then there became the opportunity set. We always thought, say, knowledge reduces risk. And so as we continue to do more and more work, it became clear they were ring-fencing the credit markets. I mean, we rotated the book over three times in 2020. There was a lot of opportunities in credit creation. And that comes from having diverse business. So we have our CLO business, we have our real estate business, we have this drawdown business, and all those different business lines see a lot of opportunities. And that informs us on times like this, where are the opportunities? I always liken our team to a soccer team, or if you think internationally football, as we try to spread the field. If you've ever watched little kids play soccer in the U.S., they huddle around the ball and move around the field. You're a hockey guy, Canadian, you know, it's like the Gretzky skate where the puck is going to be. We have offices in Europe and in Asia and have a global team that is in all different products by traders and by industries, by analysts, and just being around for 26 plus years. That gives us this inventory of knowledge that we can then monetize when the dislocation inevitably occurs in many different markets, in different regions, in part in different products. And 2020 was game time. And so it was exciting that we were able to then also rationalize what was the best risk reward opportunity across the world in different markets. And U.S. investment grade, we had meetings literally twice a day for investment committee and on Sunday. So 11 times a week, plus ad hoc huddles all the time. And we're fortunate as well, right before that, I had brought on Justin Gamillick as a partner. Justin, long, long history is uh, many things we have here. King Street actually used to work with my brother Solomon back in the day, and then he, 20 plus years at Goldman in a senior job there and ran and came in as global head of markets for us. And literally a couple months later, the world falls apart and just fantastic partner and ability to direct a lot of the cap markets activity and trading. Talking about your team, we'd love to hear what are the important factors you look for when you hire somebody and how do you motivate such a big team and keep them focused around the world globally? I point to longevity. We have uh, instituted a number of years ago something called a 10-year club. And so people have been at King Street for 10 years and we celebrate them at our holiday party at year-end. And so we've had over 90 people inducted into our 10-year club. And our 31 managing directors have been with us over 10 years. Our, our nine partners with us over 14 years. And our investors have been with us on average over 10 years. So someone coming into a well-defined culture with a deep knowledge and passion and team framework, it definitely becomes the selection process in and of itself. And so people come in, they do a project, they meet literally many, many people. It's an important vetting function. We like to emphasize people being good athletes that can be versatile because being opportunistic, you have to have that flexible and growth mindset and you have to be agnostic and you have to be able to look at things both ways. You have to have that humility as an investor because I don't know, whatever, 50 plus below 60, depending on the year, but it's not like we get 80% of the stuff. So that's always the, the dirty little secret. And what ultimately reveals itself is then that's the risk management. And so 
how do people view that? Are they able to turn themselves around or say, hey, I'm wrong, so that you're able to get out of that position and then size the appropriate ones. And that results into the highly profitable, low volatility type return stream that investors and we all shoot for. That's a good segue to talk about King Street Evolution. We'd like to touch on that today with you, Brian. We talked about how you built the team, the feedback process, how you engage them, but also as markets evolve and change. Tell us more about the recent changes that we witnessed at the firm. Well, in order to stay successful, as I said earlier, it has to continue to evolve as we've seen many companies that mistake a, a bit of beta performance with they somehow figured out the markets. And so with that, there's that, as you mentioned, that continual 360 feedback and always being open to it. That's one thing to get feedback and then do nothing about it. As we examine ourselves and say, how do we get better? How do we tackle these markets? What's your edge? And so really being honest with oneself and looking at the investment process. And one of the things we came upon four years ago was say, you know what? Our speed to market wasn't where it should be. And we'd have our analyst trader working together, analyze it. Then they go to the regional investment committee. Then they go to the global investment committee. And so the ability to put some small risk on with some of our managing directors who've been with us 10 plus years, that freed up a lot. And it's not ready, fire, aim. It is an appropriate amount to elevate then into the global investment committee to size positions. But that process and then saying, okay, let's do, we do this every couple of months. We do a, a buy, sell, and hold Literally the entire investment team gets in a room or on Zoom or what have you, and we go through every single line item in the portfolio. And that discipline is quite important from a risk, from an investment, and also from a knowledge transfer and ensuring the continuity of culture. As people learn, the younger analysts learn from the person been there for a while about how they're thinking about risk, also being selfless. Also, not just paying lip service to the team, but saying, hey, you know, in Singapore office, they got something really interesting in Australia, this piece of risk, and it's 15% upside. And and mine, it's maybe 8% upside. But so treating that capital always as so near and dear and that one has to optimize the portfolio and then really truly be honest about it and saying, hey, I got this wrong. Let's move on. Let's move there at risk. So those are all just key components uh, done. I think the firm as it changed, and really, if you think about back in the day, was the flagship fund, and they had side pockets, and the number of investors are like, I hate side pockets, and performance has been good, but it's administratively and all that. And as we've had our drawdown fund and real estate fund, all these things were incubated in the flagship fund for over 10 years. But these are discrete vehicles that enable people like yourself to say, okay, I want to choose this liquidity matchup for this asset and this return profile. And the interesting thing about King Street is we have a global team and there's not these silos, so we call it overlapping circles, that as we go into investments, there's different funds that can participate in these opportunities. But there's also our real estate team might find a lending opportunity. So it's not just buying the asset that maybe get outbid on because they're a bit pricey, but then they can come in and they can finance it. And there's just different ways to uh, take advantage of the opportunity. I know you touched on something that is really interesting. I think the listeners would like to hear more about your other portfolios outside of the flagship fund. We talked about King Street Evolution, but in the past years, we've seen also the industry evolve overall. How do you think about it as King Street? Because you are opportunistic, you seeded a lot of those investments from the flagship. And how do you allocate across the different buckets and the liquidity spectrum in both public and private investments? Sure. So as I mentioned, a lot of these have been happening for quite some time. So our Rockford Tower business, which started in 2017, is our CLO business. And that incubated, if you will, we're doing investing in secondary CLOs for quite some time before we did our own business. And it was important when we launched our CLO business, what are we going to get from it? And we found not only best in class, we won CLO Manager of the Year last year, 145 different managers, and so very proud of that achievement by Young Choi, our partner and, and the team. But beyond that, it was, as I mentioned, in 2020, many Scopo solution opportunities came out of our relationships through companies in that portfolio. So again, that synergistic effects that existed. Real estate we've been doing in the flagship for Inside Pockets for over 10 years, started our real estate fund a couple of years ago. 
There's been some interesting co-investment opportunities for some of our participants there. Uh, as I said, real estate financing. And so that's been quite valuable, again, to not only the flagship funds who invest in, in some of those opportunities, but also to our other vehicles. And the tactical fund, we mentioned there's great partners like yourself and others who took advantage of, of that market dislocation and performing credit were able to do quite nicely there. And again, piggybacking off of some of the sourcing opportunities we created, but also some of the just secondary market dislocations that existed. And then you mentioned drawdown vehicle, which is more on the illiquids and the like, which fairly straightforward. And again, blending with uh, when appropriate, bit of illiquidity in, in the flagship, which is more on the liquid spectrum. But again, these are all, as I said, overlapping circles and synergistic effects, which enable the team to really have a broad mandate. And we have our real estate team, our CLO team, but they can contribute. So people get compensated individually how they do, but also on how the overall firm does. Uh, and that keep people's incentives alive, aligned and to ensure that the culture is still surrounding a team culture. Yeah, that's super interesting. I imagine, Brian, sitting in your seat over all the years, you have worked with many investors, right? Met different investor profiles, personalities. I'm sure the listeners would love to hear this. From a hedge fund manager standpoint, what do you look for in an investor? And what's the value of having a strategic partner like TCC, for example? Well, I'd say the value is much greater now because of the complexity of the businesses. And so, as I mentioned earlier, having that deep understanding and that trust, that mutual trust and mutual understanding of each other's organizations is first and foremost and enables the other stuff to be more natural. So there's just a very open dialogue. You know, I think the industry was I don't know, one trick pony, whatever, but it was a bit more simplistic. And I think that, you know, as private equity and hedge funds, there's some blending that has gone on. So there's the increased complexity throughout the industry, which with complexity, again, I always say that knowledge reduces risk. And so it's important to have that greater understanding. You mentioned earlier, having the ability to have that deep bench operationally and to be able to take care of all the reporting requirements. So there's just a number of different things that we look for in investors that have flexible capital, can match up with us, are long-term, have an understanding. We did some sophisticated things together, your organization, ours. So having that competency, I think people at times say, oh yeah, I can do that. Call me. You call them and, and they're like, uh, uh, I don't know, I'll get back to you. You know, you're here from them. Right? So it's, I think it's important to be responsive. We're always responsive. So that's, again, that mutual respect and responsiveness and you're the client. And so it's important that we're always taking care of our clients in a first class way, as some would say. And so it's really been, again, an evolution that investors have grown. And so the ability to grow and pivot and do the work and be long-term. And so all that we have, a, again, as I said, a very long-term investor base and feel very fortunate to have so many great investors. One thing that you touched on briefly, I'd like to expand on, Brian, is really we focus on the investment side in this podcast and our usual conversations in terms of investment philosophy, process, risk management. But we didn't talk about what's behind these scenes from an operational and infrastructure perspective that supports the investments. In my opinion, that's the backbone of the whole platform. Can you please talk about how King Street built that robust infrastructure? We have an expression that we use internally. It's called follow the trail. And so what that acronym stands for is tax, risk, accounting, investor relations, and legal. And so it's important that when in, we're looking at an investment, an analyst or a trader begins, there's a operations memo that gets a questionnaire that gets filled out. So they get the heads up early on. And so you make sure that we understand we, over the years, we've dealt in so many different jurisdictions. You mentioned the tax issues. We have uh, very, very deep bench and obviously relationships with all the different outside providers, but also have that core competency inside over half our firm comes from the operations side. So we're quite proud. And back in the day, it's today perhaps a bit more plug and play in terms of all the different outsourcing. Many of these service providers didn't exist back then. So I remember our first, we had $4 million and we had a, uh, we had, of course, Bear Stearns, the prime broker. And then we had accounting firm and then we had a bookkeeper. So we used to fax our daily trades to the bookkeeper. And then we kept internally on Excel spreadsheets that I built our positions. 
So even back then, we had three sets of books and records at the prime broker, at the accounting firm, this bookkeeping firm, and then internally that we reconciled. So it's really always been from the beginning, recognize the importance of that. I think back, look at prime brokerage relationships, and it's important given the restructurings that can happen that come out of bankruptcies on the back end. So there's a lot of complexity that goes into that. So we've been doing uh, complicated situations for a very long time, and that complexity has to be handled. You can't have trade problems. You can't fall down. And being a trusted counterparty, not only to our clients, but to be able to find interesting opportunities. And that's something on the sourcing side, our capital markets expertise and our deep bench. I brought in our first cap markets person back in 2008. And so we built that out very deeply. And that's another differentiator, how to create an edge. But they work in hand in hand to make sure that we're sourcing the risks that we can process. And that's important as well. That's really cool. We talked about investments, operations. Now, given everything we discussed, how do you create a lasting edge? And what's unique about the firm you've built in today's world? Edge comes in at different points in the investment cycle. And so there's an initial edge, which is sourcing. But even before that, there's the edge on, can you understand the risk in your portfolio and what piece of risk do you need to then augment, supplement, balance, what have you. And then, so the sourcing aspect, so the risk is to figure out okay, what do you need to add? Then the sourcing, that edge, but then, okay, you gotta be able to analyze that risk. So you gotta have an edge that says, can you recognize something that is brought in as an opportunity? And also on a relative basis, so having that global exposure, being able to look at a relative value risk reward around different markets, different products, having that ability to execute on, on different transactions across different industries and products. So really having that depth and breadth and longevity because there's a lot of edge that comes from relationships as well. We have found, uh, I remember went in to see senior management, one of the largest banks in the world, and one of the most senior executives walked in and he says, ah, King Street. He said, everyone in senior management knows King Street. I said, what do we do? And (laughs) we had just bought a piece of real estate on their bad bank from them. He said, you performed. I said, really, is the bar that low? And he started laughing. <laughs> These things are important. I've traveled around the world and continue to do so. And we have long-standing relationships and people know us. They trust us. Our word is our bond. I mean, that's one of the things growing up. My dad was always like, don't let anyone outwork you and don't let your word ever be compromised. And so those are just such important things that major tenants at King Street I mean, we had other tenants. Other tenants at King Street are paranoia and insecurity, you know. <laughs> so it's and people are like, really? Oh, that sounds dark. I said, no, no, it's because the work's never done, right? It's like going edge, right? When we say to edge, we get, why are we so lucky to be seeing this opportunity? So we might have an edge in something. We question, why do we have an edge? Only the paranoid survive, right? So it's, I think it's important to, again, I, you know, emphasize humility and the fact that this stuff is hard and no one's handing you anything. And so you got to earn it. You got to have a passion. My team is, is, I'm so fortunate. They're just so passionate and talented and it's fun. It's really, really fun. And it's, it's cool to think back from 4 million bucks to where we are today. But it's funny, I, I don't really think about that stuff. It's, I'm always thinking about the future and what other cool stuff we're going to do. And it's sort of that flywheel. It just keeps going. Shifting gears to markets, let's talk about markets. A lot of things are happening now. We'd love to hear your outlook of the world, what's most interesting for you, how it really changed in recent period given the new market environment that we touched upon, and how is this influencing you or make you think about your strategy, especially given that we don't see a near-term distress cycle everyone was excited about a while ago. I started, I guess, creating distress in 87, unbeknownst to me, right? When I started banking and then 89, so soon after, that was probably one of the shorter cycles of boom to bust since the QE, central bank largesse. It's been quite elongated and mentioned the inflation certainly moving. The debate about transitory, I think one of the Fed governors talked about it. It's really about secular and cyclical. And so this cycle moving in certain aspects, their inflation, I think, wage much less transitory than the good service. So I think there's the supply chain issues, which some might say will be resolved in short order. I think that will run a bit longer. The wage pressures will not be. I think that 
There's been just enormous amount of liquidity. If you look at savings rates through the roof, even with people losing some of the benefits or maybe start having to pay some of their bills, there's still people flush with cash, companies flush with cash. So I, th I think the overall, the economies are fairly robust. There's a lot of credit differentiation. There's the lending opportunities. I mentioned the growth lending and the asset back. If you think about what it was like in both the real estate side, I mean, we're still from 2020, we're still only say 30% of occupancy in, in New York, San Francisco, around 20%. So something's got to give in commercial real estate for one and, and retail, obviously, what's the right sized and highest best use for some of these properties. So I think on that side, there'll continue to be opportunities as we go forward. 2008, it was 2011 before we saw some of the opportunities there. So there's certainly uh, a number of things on the claim side that we've continued to unearth. And so in Europe, a bunch of them post uh, pandemic claims. Some of the valuations, as I mentioned, came a bit earlier. So if you think about a lot of hospitality areas that have done well, but that's going to be uneven. You think, okay, business travel impact is, is that going to have and the opportunities that will come out of that? Have valuations run too far? What secular challenges, changes have occurred in the new world and do the valuations match up? And I mentioned earlier some of the wall of passive money out there that does for active management does create a number of opportunities. It's fairly broad base as we, again, go around the world and look at things. There's been a recent dislocation, Asian credit markets. And so there's a tremendous amount of leverage there. And many times those market gets very thinly traded. So that creates opportunities there. Europe coming back, albeit a bit more slowly, lower valuation hasn't run up as much relative to say the US. If rates do move and 22, 23, you will have, I think, some major movements in terms of discount rate and some of these high-flying uh, multiple situations. So we talk about being short-long investors, not that we're turned around, but it's many of our longs initially were shorts. And so that ability to be agnostic and just be arbiters of value and not to be anchored to any one thing and being more tactical into situations. We see many opportunities, say, in the real estate finance side, banks, a little bit less willing to go on the risk curve. And so being solution providers has really paid off and been quite fun for us. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. That being said, historically, King Street showed us you're not afraid to be a contrarian investor. You're not afraid to be different than others. And given your current opportunity set that you just described to us, what do you see to be the biggest risks in the world right now? I think, as I said earlier, you know, you, you worry about missteps in monetary policy. Used to be you had uh, fiscal monetary policy, and, and now it's all housed in one place, the central banks. And so some of the geopolitical stuff, touch wood, we hope we don't have some missteps there. I think there are certainly always at risk of policy mistakes by the central bank easing, tapering. But if you look at the wall of money being invested, they're not as dominated because it's just so much money being out there, not as worried about that. I think as you continue to have, as I mentioned earlier, some of these impacts from some of the uh, secular challenges and people moving production, different places, supply chain issues, and just, I think there's a lot of assets that are risk of being stranded and one has to be mindful of recovery rates. Early in the cycle, I always say the worst goes first. And so, so recovery rates are, are lower. So one always has to be careful. That's why the short long is effective. So we try to avoid those falling knives so the walk don't run to those opportunities. And having that agnostic and generally, if we're lucky, being already shorted, it gives us a, a very different perspective that we can cover. And then, and we're not new to that situation, then figure out the right inflection point to then buy into it. Trading is so important. It's it's really not making that first dollar or the last dollar. We always like to say we buy late and we sell early. And so there's so much money in between to make. And because what happens is at the first beginning of it, the story is not as well known, right? So the knowledge reduces risk. So you just don't have as much knowledge. And then at the very end, it lacks the convexity. And so you're only playing for a bit of upside. Your upside downside ratio is is reversed. And so other people probably see the same thing. And then so when markets get a little wobbly, they sell that first. And so it goes back to that buy, sell and hold mentality and making sure that we're front footed, making sure that we have a good sense of what the liquidity profile is of our funds and of all the opportunities out there. We've always been scouring for good sourcing opportunities and finding differentiated risk 
that makes finds things that are absolutely cheap, not relatively cheap, which again, having that complexity is an advantage barrier to entry, but also enables us to uh, have a bit less of a beta exposure. Absolutely. Having talked about King Street as an organization, having talked about markets, I guess the big question to you now, what is your biggest challenge as the head of King Street in today's world? What are you thinking about? The portfolio positioning is what consumes me the most in terms of how do I look at how we're positioned across the markets. And after that, I I divide into the tactical versus the strategic issues. And so big fond of lists and my chief of staff and assistants organize that for me and try to keep me in front and on top of things so I'm responsive. And we all are guilty at times of being a bit myopic and you want to make sure you're not looking down so you don't run into the post, but you don't want to keep looking out further so you walk into some dog stuff. So you have to make sure that there's a balance between the two. But it's our industry, like anything. And we're always thinking about how are we going to be disrupted? How are we going to continue to add value? And and that's just so important. I've heard it from the beginning that, oh, the business cycle is dead. There's never going to be another distress thing. There's never going to be a, no volatility. There's, you know, there's always going to be volatility. And it comes in different forms. And you have to the right business structure and you have to the right assets and risk profile and liquidity profile to be able to take advantage of it and be able to understand valuation at its deepest sense. And that's just so important. I talk a lot about internally about probability and proportionality. That's our job is to weight the two. And so what events are out there ahead of us? Like what's the probability that those events can occur? And then what proportion of the business or that you're looking at would it impact? Obviously, a sliding scale, right? And so when people come in and they say, right, identify the risks, so, uh, we, we can't do this. And I say, okay, well, how often does this happen? Almost never, but you know, it could happen. Okay, well, so probability is pretty low. What percentage of the business? Oh, it's a tiny bit. Conversely, right? Something, an industry that's constantly being challenged and lots of disruption. And they say, oh, no, these guys are bulletproof. They're gold-plated. You know, this never impact these guys. I mean, I can't tell you, I'm a bankruptcy distress guy at our core. So I've seen lots of perfect people, businesses, you name it. So perfect is the enemy of the good, right? If, if, you, if you get fixated on perfection, you're kidding yourself. That's about risk management too. So we look at that. It's part of the philosophy. That's really interesting stuff. We don't want to miss the famous closing questions of the interview. By the way, one of my favorite parts... So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Golf. It's such a perfect game for a number of reasons. For me, at least, I mean, you step away from the electronics. I'm not allowed to have electronics on the course. I favor the uh, early morning first off because I try to play as quickly as possible with a peer or business person or a partner or what have you and have a really great conversation, maybe about nothing, but just getting to know people, but also learning something, sharing thoughts. And then big thing is it's a game where integrity is such an integral part of it. Hard work is rewarded and there's always room for improvement. So it ticks a lot of boxes. What's your most important daily habit? Meditation. I do 11 minutes meditation. I always tell my assistant to remind me to squeeze it in when I'm being particularly difficult, she looks at me, just points to the conference room. <laughs> so it's sort of like, I just find it's grinding business and take care of it, work out early, you know, so get all that sort of release. But it's important just to center oneself because you got to clear your head. These markets are challenging, but you got to be up for the task. So it's sort of like you got to be a high performance athlete. You got to take care of the machine. Otherwise it breaks down and you're not thinking clearly and we have an awesome responsibility that we got to execute flawlessly and there'll be mistakes, but how do you recover from them? And so, you know, I try to encourage the team too. I drive them nuts with like, we've got to be healthy snacks and all this sort of stuff. So it's important to take care of everyone too. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I would say anchoring to purchase price. So when someone comes in and says, well, we bought it here. We, you know, it's like, I don't care. I mean, I care obviously, but like to assess people, I said, don't trade the mark, trade the value. So it's back to that buy, sell, or hold mentality. And it's like, what do you want to do? Okay, we lost money, we made money, doesn't matter. Let's 
assume it was gifted to you. <laughs> it just showed up in your portfolio. It's just important to clear the brain because if you think about technicals of the market, it's really psychology. Which two people had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, I mentioned them earlier, Jimmy Kane and Vince Deci. That's right. So we can go to the next question. What is the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? I think that's very interesting to learn from that. It's not sort of a specific situation because I hate losing money ever. And certainly we do it all the time. One of the things that in the sort of this self-improvement mantra is looking at when we lost money in the past, it's not valuing inputs equally or rejecting that. Oh, that guy's an idiot. Oh, okay. You know, it's like when I hear that, my ears perk up and I say, well, look, we all look like idiots a couple of times a day. I mean, it's just the markets. And so just think about your biases. And we look at that a lot, but look at the contrarian. So that's really, it's like, that's mistakes is I think we've really evolved over 26 years and got much better at that. And that, again, you got all the humility. You know, you have a good run and you think you got all the answers. And that's really the important thing. Not one situation versus the other, but really just overall, how do we manage risk and investments in a more effective manner? And it, it really goes back to that mantra is make sure you look at all the inputs. What teachings from your parents most stayed with you? I mentioned earlier, it's the integrity and hard work being a good partner. I mentioned earlier about, you know, sourcing and how we interface with people. You got to be someone that someone wants to do business with and everyone has choices. Allocators can give money to different people or people that transact with us can do things. You know, it's, it's really important to be honorable and hardworking because you, you got to earn it, right? You can't just be like, Hey, I'm a good guy. Like, yeah, great. There's a lot of good guys, but so you have to do the work to be a good counterparty. And so those are things that have always uh, stuck with me from my parents. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Final question. We have two ears and one mouth, and we should use them proportionally. <laughs> now, it goes back to you can learn something. The great thing about, say, golf or whatever, it's like, you know, you're with older people and they just listen a bit more. And so as you get older, you realize you don't have all the answers. And if you stay quiet, you might learn something and might help you find the answer. So that's really continued to work on. I got a wife and three daughters and they're always telling me about how I need to improve. So certainly I'm a work in progress, but I'm working on listening more about how I can be a better dad. Well, Brian, this was great. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation and enjoyed getting to know you beyond the bio. Thank you. Well, Tarek, you've been a great partner. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.